Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor-at-large for the penultimate version of the program for 2023. Sean, you are in the countdown, the final hours to the proverbial X day at the Sean Spear household. You got two young kids. <laughs> are you feeling the pressure, man? You gotta, you gotta, these are childhood memories. These are things that are going to cherish for the rest of their <laughs> lives and you're responsible for it. We did, uh, we did letters to Santa this morning. So I, I have to run out because there's a few things that Santa hasn't yet uh, got started on. Um, but okay. otherwise, I think we're in pretty good shape. How, how about you? Uh, yeah, pretty good. I mean, I'm just waiting for any snow here in Toronto, but I think we are going to have an El Nino Christmas, a green Christmas. Um, but hey, um, better that than shoveling the walk. Um, Sean, in the first half of the program, let's just talk about one of the big trends that you and I have been just noodling the last week or so as we kind of think back on 2023 at the Hub. We love to cover the kind of intersection of government policy, industry, and business. And Sean and I think we've put our finger on something that our listeners will find of interest and something that really needs some serious debate in this country. And then on the back half of the show, stick around. We have an incredible mystery guest who's going to show up to, to uh, conclude the program with a conversation about a book that we've been discussing a lot in the hub lately. If you're a reader, you know who I'm talking about and you know who our mystery guest might be. So stay tuned for that. But Sean, let's begin with this, this bigger um, issue that I think surfacing in Ottawa vis-a-vis -vis its relationship with corporations, both foreign and domestic, that has potentially huge ramifications for public policy. I think big ramifications for the profitability and in some cases, possibly the viability of a lot of industries in Canada. Maybe you'd like to, let me get, me, let me get you to explain it it to the guests. What is the dynamic at play here that we think defines a lot of this interrelationship, increasingly challenged interrelationship between government and business in Canada in 2023? Yeah, Roger. One thing that you and I have been thinking a lot about over the course of 2023, and in particular the past several months, um, is the extent to which we're seeing out of Ottawa the pursuit of political priorities not through the design and implementation of government programs per se, but increasingly through mandates or the threat of mandates on the private sector. Um, think, for instance, C-18, the Online News Act, which, of course, essentially sought to outsource the financing of uh, subsidies to the news media industry through private actors. Uh, what this effectively does is turn corporations uh, from their core function, of course, which is uh, the pursuit of, of profits and, and, and value for shareholders or owners into uh, indirect public policy vehicles. And, you know, I, I think that there are real challenges here in, an, in a context in which we already have um, low business investment, a, a lot of economic and uncertainty hanging over uh corporate decision-making to now have the potential where Ottawa says, hey, you know, if you don't lower fees or you don't uh, lower consumer costs or whatever, we might come in with 
new regulations, I think has the net effect of kind of effectively freezing a lot of capital uh, in the Canadian economy. Yeah, so let's think of some other examples this last year. Um, another high profile one would have been around Canadian banks and the extent to which the government in the last, in the fall economic statement, suddenly says to banks, well, here are all these steps that you have to take to um, remediate people when they're renewing their mortgages. And yeah, look, you might say, hey, that's a great idea. People should get a break from the banks. The banks have tons of profits. Um, but nonetheless, it's government imposing upon a series of corporations a set of um, a priori assumptions about how they should be dealing with customers. I think in some ways that's the least noxious example. The biggest one, even I think larger than the Online News Act, is what we've seen with electric vehicles. We now have these incredible mandates, and I've seen incredible in this context of aggressive, that as soon as 2026, one-fifth of all cars sold in dealerships will need to be electric vehicles. In the last year, roughly one in 20 cars sold in Canada were electric vehicles. So you're talking about a fourfold increase in approximately 48 months. And what's fascinating about this is, is it's not as if there are more government incentives to buy electric cars or governments are giving corporations tax breaks on the manufacturing of electric cars or the sourcing of electric car parts. No, it's that the auto manufacturers are going to be mandated by law to sell a product that demonstrably there may not be the demand for. In fact, one would suggest in two short years, it's virtually impossible to think that electric vehicle demand would quadruple. So my our point here, and I think it's something Sean and I have thought a lot about this last year, is that government, as it's reached its, as this particular government and as progressive governments generally have reached their fiscal capacity, i.e. debt and deficit costs have exploded, uh, debt servicing costs have surged, there just simply isn't the room in the public purse anymore to advance their public policy priorities in the traditional manner that governments do. Um, so instead now it's all being outsourced. It's being pushed off and onto corporations. And one could at some level say, oh, well, I guess that's a good idea. We don't have to pay for it as taxpayers, but understand that you as a consumer one way or another are gonna pay for this, trust me. Because what's happening here is it's either destroying market signals, i.e. What is the real demand for electric cars? Is it one in 20 or one in five? Government thinks it should be one in five in two years. Right now it's one in 20. So you're obliterating market signals. And then you're requiring, in the case of Google and not Meta, because they've exempted themselves from the C18 News Act, you're requiring corporations to just take on to their costs a whole series of costs that the government thinks that they should be shouldering. Again, returning less capital to investors, um, requiring restructuring of you know balance sheets and assumptions about revenues and expenditures. I don't know, Sean. It's I, if I was a large corporation in Canada right now, or foreign, especially maybe if I was a large foreign-owned company in Canada right now, I would be very, very nervous. I think this is a moment where. A government that has an ambitious agenda, uh, you know, what's that expression? A grasp, a reach that exceeds its grasp, 
or the other way around, a grasp that exceeds its reach. Something is happening here where that agenda is not slowing down despite you know, the real and severe constraints in terms of fiscal capacity that the government now faces. Yeah, and it has the net effect of concealing or obscuring the two true costs of its decisions from taxpayers. There's a kind of democratic accountability issue here. It, I, I've been thinking about it in preparation for our conversation today because I knew it was something you, you might want to discuss. And I wonder if Obamacare is the real kind of genesis of, of this type of policy making, whereas rather than bringing a, a public health system with, within the U.S. government, they essentially sought to kind of outsource the costs of their healthcare ambition through these mandates. Uh, and and when, you, when you think about it, Rudyard, we talk often about the size of Canada's economy represented by government. But I think what we're kind of describing here is there's the government as we understand it, but then there is the these the extent to which other parts of our society, including private sector firms, are essentially taking on quasi-government mandates um, that aren't reflected in the true cost of the state. And yeah, there's a whole host of problems. One, I mentioned the kind of democratic accountability part, um, but I, I wouldn't underestimate um, the kind of uncertainty that it it presents for private sector actors. I mean, think about it this year. This year, Christia Freeland, our finance minister, two or on two or three separate occasions, essentially went out and said, if different actors in our economy don't do things that we like, we're prepared to use regulatory action. You know, either you either you do it voluntarily. I'm I have I'm saying that in scare quotes, or we're going to to use uh, our our regulatory levers. I, I you know that creates this whole dynamic where we have large parts of our economy making judgments not based on basic economics, but either on what Ottawa wants or what they think Ottawa wants. And, and I'll just say one final point here. And um, there's a lot of talk in policy circles right now about competition policy that I think the Globe and Mail this morning, in fact, has a, an editorial talking about Ottawa, the possibility that competition reform is a big part of Ottawa's agenda in 2024. I'm not so sure. I actually think one of the Ottawa likes the fact that we don't have a lot of competition in different parts of the economy because it enables it to do these types of things. You can effectively bring the entire industry into one room uh, in a form of Laurentian capitalism and essentially kowtow them into taking on these different mandates. So I, I think there's a kind of inherent tension between Ottawa's um, notional support for competition reform uh, and this type of policy making through fiat um, that that we're talking about. Yeah, well put. Um, and I just, I think we got to keep an eye on this because it's also taking what should be the democratic and accountable framework that government creates legislation in, but then also in many cases is required to have that policy work itself out through programs and priorities that government is also and ministers are also ultimately responsible for. So what's slightly terrifying about all this is that it's, it's not only messing with market signals, it's not only impeding the profitability of companies or in the case of auto manufacturers, I just have no idea how they 
how they miraculously stimulate electric electric vehicle demand fourfold in 48 months. That's the work of a magician, not a car builder. It, it means that all of that is going to be all these kind of so-called public goods that the government has identified need to be brought about are going to happen within inside these opaque corporations. And I mean, literally God help them because everyone will, you know, second guess whatever decisions they've made, whatever assumptions they've come to, to try to bring about these, these policy diktats that are being imposed on them by a government that again, I just think is run up against the run up against simple fiscal capacity. It just does not have the means through which it can fund the policy priorities that it thinks its electorate, its coalition of voters demands. So to wrap this up, Sean, where do you think this this goes? I mean, it's hard for a lot of these companies to revolt because if we think of the banks, auto, uh, you know, the telecommunications companies just this year had a you know a ridiculous CRTC ruling that they basically have to make all their networks uh, that they've spent you know tens of billions of dollars building out available to competitors <laughs> because hey, cheaper. I guess cheaper wireless is an interest to the government. So, you know, the best way to do that is just impose on these companies, in a sense, uh, an indirect tax. Um, where does this go going forward? Because these companies, a lot of them are deeply in bed with the government or receiving large scale subsidies. They are aggressive rent seekers on their own accord. So one might say to them, hey, you made the Faustian bargain, guys uh, and ladies. You're, you now need to bear the consequences of that. But, you know, I just, as you said, Sean, what is the effects here on productivity, on foreign direct investment, on the competitiveness of Canadian companies vis-a-vis, you know, American or global peers? None of this looks good. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. Part of it, I do think, involved requires some of these industries or, or companies pushing back. Um, as you say, that 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 involves some challenges because so many of them are are operating in heavily regulated sectors, and the government seems prepared to either use policy or the threat of policy to kind of bring them to heel. I, I think the more philosophical response has to be to call on progressives to essentially make the full case for their ambitions. You know, that is to say, it's not merely enough to say, here's a bunch of things that we want, but they have to be prepared to make the case um, uh, that Canadians ought to be prepared to pay for them. I think that isn't that the major issue here, Rudyard? You know, one thing that I wrote about for the Hub earlier this year is that we are currently living in a world of Stephen Harper's tax rates and Justin Trudeau's spending priorities. And essentially what we're saying today is that the gap between the two is being fobbed off onto the private sector in the form of these mandates. And I, I think at some point, the case has to be made by progressives um, that if you want Justin Trudeau's spending priorities or or Jagmeet Singh's or whomever, um, then it ha- then Canadians, um, and not merely the, you know, the so-called 1%, um, but, but down the line, you'd be prepared to pay for it. I would just say... Um, that's not a crazy expectation. There are other jurisdictions around the world uh, that have larger governments as the size of GDP, 
and they have higher tax rates. And that's a kind of set of political preferences that they've articulated in government policy. What we're trying to do here is essentially have big government on the cheap. And I think there are a whole host of downsides um, that that we need to be cognizant of. Yeah. And I would just say, rest be assured, you will pay as a consumer. They're because at the end of the day, these businesses have to be profitable. Like, it's almost as if people don't, there's a certain segment of that, of Ottawa that just, I mean, yeah, like you, you can't just tell auto manufacturers to make tons of electric vehicles that no one wants to buy. Um, that is a recipe for unprofitability or maybe something something worse. So somehow those costs are going to have to be borne, whether they're borne by, you know, you individually as the purchaser of a non-electric vehicle or through some form of regulation or taxation, uh, you know, that's indirect. It, there's no free lunch in economics. And I, I don't think there's any free lunch in governments trying to fob off the costs of, in many cases, I think, especially when it comes to the EV mandates, deeply unrealistic policies onto industry and onto consumers. Well, let's take a break here. Back on the other side, our special guest joins us. You're not going to want to miss this conversation. This person is a legend in their field of endeavor and has been a big part of one important topic that the hub has been debating these past few weeks. So back with that special guest right after this break. The hub has the perfect holiday gift for the thinking person in your life. That's right. You can give the gift of the hub. Hub gifties get all kinds of great benefits, including a one-size-fits-all luxury twill hub baseball cap to sport their hubbiness this holiday. You get access for your giftie to Hub Form, our daily email newsletter and discussion group, complimentary access for the giftie to all our live events, and special offers on events, books, and Hub merchandise. Grab your Hub gift subscription right now at our website, www.thehub.ca. Simply click on the Join button, scroll to the bottom of our membership page, follow the instructions, and we'll give you 20% off right now on this gift offer. Simply input the promo code SUBSCRIBE20 at checkout. Give the gift to the Hub this holiday season. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. Well, now that is the time for that special reveal. We promised you at the year end uh, a guest on Hub Roundtable that is someone that Sean and I have um, admired for a long time. This is a big impact on our kind of thinking, has a big impact on my professional career, and has indirectly been the focus of uh, a great series that we've been doing at the Hub marking the 25th anniversary of the iconic Canadian book, Who Killed Canadian History. So it's a real privilege to welcome on the roundtable the author of Who Killed Canadian History, renowned Canadian historian, Jack Granenstein. Jack, great to be in conversation with you. Thanks, Roger. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's start, Jack, uh, your assessment of where we are today, 25 years after the publication of Who Killed Canadian history. If you were to write another book today to pick up the conversations, the ideas that you stimulated with that original bestseller, what would you title it? What is the state of Canadian history 
in 2023? Worse than it was 25 years ago. Um, Let me uh, begin with a little anecdote. I actually approached the publisher of Who Killed Canadian History about a year and a half ago and said, maybe there's room for a real update. I was astonished by the reply I got. Good idea, but our staff wouldn't accept it. Our staff wouldn't allow this publishing house to produce that book. In other words, wokeism had taken over that particular publishing house and another one that I then approached after uh, to such an extent that a book that was critical of a lot of things that struck me as being very sensible simply would not manage to get printed these days. Um, That shook me enormously. So that was one thing that that upset me. Another thing was uh, watching the Canadian Historical Association, which is the over the ruling body of Canadian historians, if there could be such a thing, uh, deal with the whole residential schools question. They sent out a letter basically saying, this issue is settled, you're either on side or you're not. And those people who weren't were essentially uh, labeled as, forgive me, old farts who no one need to pay any attention to. And the government of Canada, uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, lowered the flags to half-mast for six months. Uh, Two ministers called for what they termed denialism, to be hate speech. And uh, a lot of people uh, were shocked by that, including me. A lot of historians, however, actually began doing research into what actually happened in the residential schools, and some of their conclusions were were very different. History simply is never settled. It, there's always room for argument. The new research demonstrated that uh, there weren't hidden cemeteries. Uh, there weren't uh, missing children. There were death certificates for most of them. Almost no one was forced to attend residential schools. Uh, only very, very rare cases was that true. And nobody was denying that there was uh, deaths, mainly from illness, TB and measles and other diseases that kids coming from reserves and isolated areas were peculiarly uh, prone to getting. And yes, there was sexual abuse from clergy and staff and also from older children against the younger ones. Uh, In other words, it's a much more layered story than it's been presented to the public. So far, after two and a half years or so, there has not been a single body recovered. There were charges of murder, but there has been no police investigation. The Canadian Historical Association acted in a way that simply astonished me that historians could ever act. They should know better than to assume that history is always one-sided, and once you have an answer, the whole subject is closed. It's not the way it works. In that vein, Jack, let me put a a follow-up question to you. Um, The Prime Minister has referred to Canada as a post-national state. Our population is being transformed through an ambitious 
immigration policy. What's the importance in your mind for a, a renewed commitment to a national history in that context? How, what role can national history play uh, in, a, in a society that is increasingly marked by diversity and growing questions, I think, about uh, our relationship to one another? I'm in favor of immigration. I think this country can absorb people. Maybe we have to resolve our housing problems at the moment first, but I'm in favor of immigration. But what worries me is that this country has never seriously tried to integrate the people who come here. They're essentially left on their own. It has always been that way. There has never been a concentrated effort to integrate people into Canadian society. This is a formed society. This is a nation. And it has a history. And part of integrating people into the society is to let them understand what it believes, what it has done, what it wants to do, what it expects its people to do to and with each other. It seems to me that's absolutely critical. And to say that, yes, you can come here and you can live your own life uh, as a Somali, as a Ukrainian, as a Venezuelan, uh, as a Frenchman, strikes me as simply madness. Otherwise, you never integrate people. You never wholly integrate them. Yes, there is a uh, an absorptive effect that comes to people who come here. Their kids may learn to play hockey. They're not going to learn any history in school because we don't teach it. They're not going to understand that this is a society in which we don't overthrow our governments by uh, holding machine guns to the head of the prime minister and dragging the bodies through the streets. We don't do that in this country. We have a different way of operating. And if you're coming here, we want you to understand what that way is. We want you to buy into it. We want you to believe it. And the way you do that, not wholly, but a large part, the way you do that is by understanding where we came from, understanding our history, how we Canadians shaped it. Jack, is there a way back? You know, you and I were active participants in the 2000s after your book really did kind of kick off that national debate and discussion to try to stick more history into school curriculums, to try to get, um, I think of our project that you helped us with at the Dominion Institute to bring veterans into school schoolrooms across the country. There was a, an upswing there. Uh, Historico was created at that time. I look around today though, Jack, and it seems very different. It seems much more arid, to put it politely, in terms of you know, the civic resources, the civic kind of energy that could or might be dedicated to the cause of renewing or revitalizing an appreciation of the past. What's your take? Well, part of the reason for that, I think, is that we're desperately afraid of offending anyone. So you can't say anything unless you're very, very careful. You have to allocate equal time to everybody and everything, and you have to treat it in a overly fair way. So how can you talk about the Second World War if the Germans are the bad guys? How can you uh, deal with uh, the, the Balkans if the Bosnians and the, uh, the Croats and the 
uh, Serbs are killing each other and each side would really prefer to fight on the streets of Toronto rather than to listen to any discussion of this. It's, uh, I don't know what they can teach these days that isn't offensive to someone. And being offensive seems to be the worst crime one can imagine these days. We're, I hate the term, snowflakes, but we really are all a little bunch of snowflakes who are very worried by anything that upsets us. Um, I used to say almost anything I wanted in lectures. I would have been in serious trouble if I was still lecturing these days at a place like York University, which is troubled most of the time. Um, I'm not sure how anybody could manage. Most of my friends who are still teaching, uh, I think, almost live in fear that they will say the wrong thing to someone and get into serious trouble. Um, a woman, tenured faculty member in Alberta, was fired for questioning the residential schools uh, story. Um, I find that simply staggering that a professor with tenure could be sacked as she took a contrary position on a matter of public interest. Um, really tough to teach in the public schools, high schools, or universities these days, or to write something. Uh, Conrad Black can write a column each week that usually raises my hair, but he's okay. He's got the money to fight it if he is attacked, but not very many other people do. I, I went back in preparation for the series that we ran over the over the month of December, marking the 25th anniversary of, of Who Killed Canadian History, which I should just say in parentheses, was supported a, a great deal by GDM Stewart, uh, one of those Canadians who's trying to make a difference uh, in, in, in a world where history is increasingly marginalized. And, and I was struck both by, in a way, its prescience uh, and, in a way, the extent to which it underestimated the trends that we're, we're talking about here. I, I, I put it to you, Jack, in hindsight, would you have said and written anything differently uh, 25 years later? I read the book for the first time in a long time this week, and I was astonished by how mild it was. Um, but at the time, in other words, in 1997, when I was writing it, um, seemed to me to reflect the state, the state of affairs as it was then. I could, I, I pointed to the things that we now know were coming, and I, like I began this chat by saying, I couldn't have imagined that we would be this deep in the hole now uh, as we are. But I think I got it right in 1997, and the book was published in 98. Um, if I was writing it today, if I'd been allowed to write it today, as again, as I suggested, I would have taken a much stronger uh, line. God, I upset all sorts of people with what I said in, in the 1998 book. Uh, there were all sorts of people who never talked to me again, much to my relief. <laughs> Well, Jack, we have so much enjoyed uh, spending not just this time with you, but 
the last few weeks of the hub, you know, reflecting on who killed Canadian history. And I want to thank all the uh, contributors who participated in that series, um, writing really thoughtful, long form essays, and also all the great reader reaction that we've received to editorial at the hub.ca fantastic comments coming in. So offline, Jack, let's have a conversation about a Canadian publisher. I, you and I, we, Let's find somebody, if you're game, I'd love to see a, a second edition of uh, Who Killed uh, Canadian History. Could we do that? It would be the third edition. I, there was a second edition in 2007. Excellent. Well, one of your over 60 books, uh, an officer of the Order of Canada, the former CEO of the Canadian War Museum, uh, winner of innumerable prizes for history, writing, scholarship. Um, Jack, thank you so much for your decades of public service and keeping this debate going. We are committed here at The Hub to continuing to talk about the importance, the place of Canadian history um, in our society, in our culture, in our politics. Um, we're going to keep the home fire burning. So thank you, sir, for coming on the program today. Thanks, Rudyard. Thanks, Sean. It's been great talking to you. Well, that wraps up this I guess, Sean, uh, Christmas semi-eve uh, edition of the Hub Roundtable, wishing all of our Hub listeners and readers the very best for the holidays. Sean and I are going to squeeze one more show in next week, so hang around for that. We'd love to talk to you on the 29th, Friday. We're going to make some just completely out-of-the-ballpark irresponsible predictions about everything you could or should expect from 2024. <laughs> We've got it nailed, Sean, don't we? Yes, indeed. We'll have to limit the eggnog or maybe maybe up the eggnog uh, quant quantity before the recording of that episode. Excellent. Well, let's do it, Sean. We'll talk to you next Friday just before New Year's Eve. Be well, everybody. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Hub Roundtable. If you've enjoyed what you've just heard, Come on over to www.thehub.ca and check us out. You'll find all kinds of great commentary, analysis, and insights by our writers, including Sean Spear. While you're there, consider clicking on the Join button. This will take you to our complimentary membership offer. Put in your email and we will send you each Saturday a compilation of our best writing and commentary from the week that was. We really appreciate your support, and we also greatly appreciate the support of the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Foundation and the Maxine and Ira Gornowski Gluskin Foundation for making these podcasts possible. The Hub Roundtable is produced and edited by Amal Otter Guzman. Thank you for listening.